Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I'm very excited to have another throwback episode for you. So if you have not yet heard one of our throwback episodes, these are essentially a chance for you to hear live events from Santa Barbara Community Church where Story Night began. And as always, I've got our speaker on the podcast with us. So after you hear her story from many years ago, you're actually going to get to hear her today and get a little catch up. So... I invite you now to sit back, relax, and enjoy Jill's story from October 2012. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 say, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I'm going to tell you a story about when the mountains in my life fell into the heart of the sea. I'm the oldest of three children, and I grew up in Southern California playing with my brother and sister and the kids in our neighborhood. I loved coming up with new games for us to play and chasing after my brother who could climb trees and ride bikes better than me, and he was younger than me, so that kind of bothered me. I loved to read all kinds of books, but my favorite were the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. I would pretend I was Laura, and my little sister, Jana, was baby Carrie. One summer, I even opened a lending library with my best friend, Renee. If someone in my neighborhood described me, they would have said I was friendly, creative, and loved children. The bane of my existence was practicing the piano. (laughs) My mom is and was a piano teacher, so... Go there with me. That was difficult. And I also did not like walking home from school because it truly was all uphill. (laughs) Even though I was shy at school and I read a lot at recess, I remember my childhood as a happy one. By junior high, my parents had transitioned from their faculty roles at Azusa Pacific University and had joined Wycliffe Bible Translators. This meant a move to Idlewild, California, as my parents were now the directors of the training program for new members. I loved living in the mountains, and to this day, the smell of pine sap brings vivid memories to mind. I picture long summer days swimming in the pool, running inside when the thunder clapped during a late afternoon storm, laughing long and hard with the kids that I met at each of the training camps, endless rounds of card games, nighttime adventures playing capture the flag, and playing with the toddlers each evening when their parents were in meetings. These memories fill me with joy. School, however, was socially difficult. I had a 45-minute bus ride off the mountain to Hemet, where I attended school. And if you want to quickly stand out in a crowd, have your bus checked every day for marijuana. Also, wear a coat, because when you left Idlewild that morning, it was snowing, and everyone else, when you got to school, everyone's wearing short sleeves. So that was difficult. Standing out in a crowd, though, ended up not being as hard as I thought it would be once I joined the youth group at our church. Now I had friends who were in the same boat as me, and they were really fun to be around. This was my first experience having fun with a group of people who held similar beliefs as me, and I decided I wanted to continue this type of living situation when I went to college. I met my husband, Rich, our freshman year of college. We started out as study partners for a psychology class, but quickly realized we had a lot in common, and we ended up dating our whole time at Westmont. We were married a month after we graduated, and we moved to Washington State. I'm thankful for the years that Rich and I both taught fifth grade, even though we were teaching in different school districts. We attended graduate school together at Seattle Pacific University, and we were involved with a wonderful church. We had many opportunities to explore the great Pacific Northwest, reveling in the natural beauty of Mount Baker and Mount Rainier. And we developed really deep friendships with friends and extended family who lived up there in the Seattle area. When our son Taylor was born, we realized how much we miss living near family, and so when he was four months old to the day, we moved back to Santa Barbara. Rich had a teaching job, teaching sixth grade in town, and I got to stay home with Taylor. Two years later, our daughter Alyssa was born. 
While I loved teaching, I was really thankful for the time I got at home with our kids. When Alyssa started kindergarten, I went back into the classroom, and for a couple of years, all four of us were at the same school. It was hectic, and my house was not clean, but I was really happy. I was teaching, I was on the same schedule as my kids, and for the first time in seven years, we weren't squeaking by financially. We had also decided that the kids were old enough to travel. Our first summer, we visited my sister, who was teaching in Oaxaca, Mexico. We walked among the ruins of Monte Alban. We admired the exquisite black pottery and the colorful textiles. We ate a lot of corn tortillas topped with beans, rice, and a really good green sauce. And we just loved taking in the sights and the sounds of the indoor markets in the town square and living just life in my sister's neighborhood. That's when we realized that our whole family loved to travel. Two summers later, we visited my brother, who lives in China. It's difficult to describe how wonderful and amazing this trip was for us. It was also really hard. It wasn't just being in a different culture. It was completely not understanding the language. And I was really grateful for my brother and sister-in-law who translated the whole time they were there. It was walking down the narrow streets of the Hutongs near the Forbidden City, trying crickets on a stick, bartering at the Pearl Market, watching lots of badminton games in the park, gazing out my brother's 10th floor window as a sandstorm descended on the city. It was standing in Tiananmen Square and seeing the incredible beauty of the Summer Palace grounds and walking on the Great Wall of China. While we were in China, my mom started having routine tests come back abnormal. We kept in touch via email and the occasional Skype chat, and I could hear in her voice that there was some concern. I can specifically remember praying that God would show the doctors what was wrong and that it was not cancer. In my mind, there was nothing, nothing worse than cancer. We returned home from this amazing trip, and I started getting my classroom ready for the new school year. There were little rumblings that I could feel, and cracks were starting to form in the foundation of my life. I was starting to develop stomach issues, and I seemed to take at least one sick day a month. And then there were my mom's weird test results. Exactly six years ago today, the first mountain came crashing down. My sister phoned to say that my mom had been diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer. I will never forget that moment. I screamed into the phone. No, God, no. I need my mom and my kids need their grandma. And I didn't even know, my whole family tells me, I didn't even know how much I was screaming. It came from a place that was so deep inside of me. I felt like I couldn't breathe. This was pretty much the worst news I could ever receive. My mom is one of my closest friends. We talk every day on the phone. And suddenly I didn't know if I had days, weeks, or months with her. I remember bits and pieces from this time, Megan and Marty taking the kids to church because I was a complete wreck and Rich would not leave me by myself at home. Krista helping me figure out how I could write lesson plans and get the kids taken care of while Rich was at work and get to Orlando. With the help of a lot of friends and family, I was able to fly to Orlando to be with my mom when she had surgery three days later. I remember crawling into her hospital bed right before she was wheeled into surgery, and as I held her, it hit me that I might never see her alive again. And I whispered, I love you, Mom. And immediately, I felt a peace that I had never felt before. This was not a peace that my mom was going to live. It was a peace that whatever happened, whatever happened, God was with me. I tangibly felt that God was in our hospital room. Leaving my mom and dad at the end of the week in the capable hands of my sister was excruciating. I was a complete wreck. Many nights that fall, I walked around our neighborhood after dinner, and I just felt like a caged tiger. I just paced. I was physically in Santa Barbara, and I was really trying hard to keep things together, but mentally I was in Orlando willing my mom to get better. To manage stress in my life, I compartmentalize. In my brain, there's the family section, the teaching section, the friends section, and the my mom has cancer section. I'm very good at compartmentalizing, so for the next four years, I continued teaching and seeing my mom and dad as I was able. And I pretty much lived life as I had before my mom's diagnosis. In fact, if you had asked me how I was doing, I would have said I was doing pretty well. I had more hard days health-wise, but I chalked that up to teaching full-time, not exercising as much as I used to, and just getting older. Two summers ago, another mountain crumbled, cracked, and crashed into the sea. I wasn't feeling well, but I knew why I was stressed. 
Our close friends were getting ready to move to Argentina. I was teaching a new grade in a new school. And my mom was starting chemo for the third time. I struggled through that summer, losing weight and dealing with constant pain in my stomach and my lower back. I knew I was sick, but I also knew I could get through this because I always did. Our friends moved. I finished getting my classroom set up, and I began teaching. And on the second day of school, when I almost fainted, I acknowledged that something could be seriously wrong. Rich met me at urgent care, and after running tests, I was admitted to the hospital. Three days later, we had a diagnosis. I had Crohn's disease, and I was in the middle of a flare-up. When the doctor walked into my room to see how I was doing, I remember saying, look, I understand that I have Crohn's disease and that I think I'm in the middle of a flare-up, but I just need to know when I can get back to my students because it's really bad to be gone the first week of school. Okay, the doctor looked at me, and then he looked at Rich, and he said, I don't think you understand the seriousness of what we're talking about. I have no idea when you'll be back in the classroom. I just know that we need to make a plan for the treatment of your disease. I was released from the hospital after a five-day stay, and within a week, I was back in the classroom. This was only possible because my mom came out from Florida to help with my kids, and she also started doing all of the cooking in our family because I was now on the specific carbohydrate diet, which is really good for people with Crohn's disease. I was also on heavy pain medication. I taught erratically for the next two months. I continued to lose weight, I was in constant pain, and I took pain medicine morning, at lunch recess, and at night. And I was calling for a substitute every other day. But somehow in my mind, I was managing. Until the last week of October, when I could not get out of bed. I called my principal and I asked if I could have a long-term sub just until Christmas, and she readily agreed. I had hit an all-time low. One night that fall, as I was writhing on the couch, unable to find a comfortable position to go to sleep, I remember crying out, why is this happening to me? Why am I in so much pain? When is this going to stop? Instead of an answer, I felt like Jesus came and sat down right next to me on the couch. It was almost like he was holding me. He did not say one word, but I felt all of the fear that had engulfed me disappear. Nothing changed physically for me that night. I still slept fitfully, but I do remember feeling that God was with me. If only I could have remembered that truth in the days and weeks to come. I didn't. In fact, for a period, I turned my back on that scene. It's almost like I walked away from the couch where Jesus was holding me, and I decided I would just fix everything myself. With my leave of absence approved, I now had two months to figure out how to get better. I needed to figure out how to gain weight, get the pain under control, and get this flare-up in remission. I even had a really great team of doctors working on my case. Within one year, I had a general practitioner, a gastroenterologist, a rheumatologist, and a neurologist on my team. To better help me and to figure out the extent of the damage to my intestines, I had three colonoscopies in six weeks. And I was put on four different medications in three months. I was allergic to every one of those medicines. Nothing was working. I remember seeing my gastroenterologist on December 22nd. When he asked me how I was doing, I said, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm supposed to be back in the classroom at the beginning of January, and I haven't made as much progress as I wanted. I had lost 27 pounds. My wonderful doctor set down his pen, took my hand, and said, Jill, I don't think it's in your best interest to go back into the classroom right now. You're still in the middle of a flare-up, you're still underweight, and we're still trying to find a medicine that your body can even handle. Would you like me to write a letter to your principal explaining your situation? I just cried. Would I like him to write a letter to my principal? No, I didn't want him to write a letter to my principal. I wanted to teach. I wanted to feel better. I was so sad and so confused. I did not understand how this could be happening to me. God knew I was needed in the classroom. He knew I loved teaching and that that was what I was supposed to be doing. He created me. He, of all people, knew I was a teacher. I remember at one point during that two-month period hearing a really quiet voice say, Be still. And if I'm honest, I knew it was God. And I was sure that he had my best interests in mind. But I did not have time to be still. I was trying so hard to get better. 
in January, it became clear that we needed outside help if we were going to get this flare-up under control. When one of Rich's colleagues asked how I was doing and realized that we were looking to add another doctor to my team, he got on the phone right there in the staff room and called Dr. Melvin, a Crohn's specialist at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And within days, I had an appointment with this doctor, and we drove to his office in Beverly Hills. After reviewing my inch-thick file and examining me, he said, Crohn's patients range from mild to moderate to severe. And you're definitely in the, and this is what he did, the moderate to severe group. He said, you're having a really strong reaction to the medication, and my recommendation is that you start Remicade immediately. Okay, I was so sick and so desperate by this point, I would have agreed to anything. So it's providential that either he forgot to mention or I did not hear him mention that this was an infusion drug. Infusion, meaning you get it in your veins. Meaning you get a needle each time you get it in your veins. Okay, I have a long history of problems with needles. In fact, when I was admitted to the hospital, it took four tries and a large bruise on my arm to get my IV started. Needles, however, ended up being the least of my problems with this drug. We wouldn't learn that, though, for six months. I started Remicade with the help of friends who sat with me through the two-hour-long treatments every eight weeks. I also spent a lot of time talking to God. My conversations went something like this. I don't understand. It's February, it's March, it's April, it's May, and I'm still not back in the classroom. Why is this? And I felt like God kept coming back to me with things like, I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be still and know that I am God. I love you. And that was great. It really was. But that was not answering my question. God is very patient, and he was infinitely patient with me. About this time, I received an email from a friend that said, I just found Anne's blog, and I think you'd like what she has to say. And she just wrote a book. I think I'm going to pick it up. I found Anne Voskamp's blog, A Holy Experience, and I read the first few pages of her book, 1,000 Gifts, A Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are. And immediately I ordered it. When the book arrived, I read it in two days. And what she had to say about God and grace and giving thanks, it felt like God used Anne's book to bandage up a really deep wound inside of me that was seeping ugly. It was, it was angry. I was angry and confused. And so I was so overwhelmed with this feeling that I decided to take her challenge, and I decided, decided to start my own list of 1,000 gifts. So on January 23rd, 2011, as we drove to that first appointment with Dr. Melmed, I started writing. And I wrote in that journal for over a year. Some days I wrote a lot. Other days, I wrote hardly anything, especially if I was in pain or discouraged. But I wrote every single day. And the transformation, for me, was miraculous. Mind you, this was right when I was starting Remicade, that infusion drug, and when I was getting multiple pokes each visit. I also had to change my diet again and place more restrictions on what I ate. My mom was starting her fourth round of chemotherapy, and I was developing breathing issues and full body aches from the Remicade. During this period, I also added a physical therapist to the list of people I regularly saw. It was in this environment, this environment, that my eyes were opened, and I saw things I'd never seen before. How the wind blew gently on my face when I took a walk. How my daughter laughs hard when she's happy. The sparkle in my son's eye when he scores a goal. And the way that Rich took care of me when I was sick. These are the things I wrote in my journal. And I realized that God truly was my refuge, and he was my strength for 17 months, that is. Until that morning last June, when I woke up and decided I didn't want to write anymore. What was the point? I had a chronic illness, and my mom still had cancer. I had forgotten the point of keeping that list. The list was not to remind God of what he had done. It was to remind me. Yeah, I have a really short-term memory when it comes to these kinds of things. It is so easy for me to focus on what's not going well. When each day is the gift, if I'm willing to see it. Each day has something for which I can be thankful. Even if all I write is, the sun shone through the leaves on the tree across the street. When the Frolings moved to Argentina, we comforted ourselves, both families did, with the fact that we would be visiting them the following summer. Remember, we like to travel. 
this got us through very hard days at the beginning when we were missing them terribly and I was really sick. Spring came and it was time to start looking for those tickets. While I was still not out of the flare-up and I was still underweight, we were going to Argentina. That was a non-negotiable. I remember so clearly the day that I realized that we would not be going to see them that summer. I was getting my Remicade infusion and my friend Chris was sitting by my side when I said, Chris, so much has been taken from me, my health, my job, our financial security. I don't want to give up this trip, but I really don't think I can do it. Something deep inside of me is saying that I'm not strong enough to go. And I started to cry. Chris is really wise, and she just sat there and agreed that probably God was giving me information. The problem was I didn't want this information. I didn't want to listen. I was really, really sad. So I came home from that infusion. Rich was at work. I wrote him an email, and I wrote to the Frolings, and letting him know my thoughts. And very quickly, Krista wrote back, Yes, we thought this could be a possibility, and we've been praying for wisdom. We do not want something to happen while you're here, so please know that we understand. Another mountain, our ability to travel, went crashing into the sea. Last May, I saw my gastroenterologist for a routine examination, and after looking at all of my blood work, he said, everything looks good. I think you're in remission. But unlike some things that you could be dealing with, you have an autoimmune disease, and it's chronic. So, I don't know if you're in remission for a month, or a year, or forever. I didn't really show any emotion. So he said, how are you doing? When I mumbled, I don't know, okay. He said, because with all that you've been going through, with all the medicines that you were allergic to, it's kind of like your body is waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm not saying that you have depression, but you, your body is depressed. So the next time I see you, which hopefully won't be until your next appointment, I want you to put yourself out there a little bit. Join a group, start a hobby, something, anything. That was five months ago. While I have made progress and have committed to a few things each week, there are many days I just don't want to get out of bed. It's easier to check out and just watch a movie on Netflix than reach out to someone and let them know I'm not doing well. If I'm honest, I have to choose hour by hour and sometimes minute by minute if I want to believe that what God says is true or if I want to walk away from everything I know. In August, I picked up my journal and I began once again naming the gifts. I had, to, I had mentally said them all summer, but writing them down allowed me to stop and think, to ponder all that God has done and is doing in my life. This time I wrote as an act of obedience, even when I didn't feel thankful. Some days my fists are clenched so tight they hurt because I'm trying to hold on to my mom and my health, and the only way to unclench them is to verbalize in writing the thanks. One of the things God showed me when I was unable to return to teaching is that I can sew whether I'm in pain or not. I love to sew, especially things that don't have a lot of parts. So, like this. A couple of years ago, I had made a banner for our house, and it said, Faith. And then when Krista went to Argentina, I made her one to take with her. So when I realized I would be home full-time and I really did not have a lot of energy, I started sewing. I made banners for my family and our relatives, and then God started bringing people's names to mind. Sometimes he would even give me a word. I remember the first time this happened. I said something like, this is awkward. What if the person doesn't want the banner? <laughs> what if this word is not helpful to them? But I felt like God kept that person and that word on my mind, and so I had to make the banner. I'm a gift giver by nature, and with us on one income, this was something I could give that really only cost me my time, and I had a lot of time. I didn't think that I could ever enjoy anything as much as teaching, but I have come to find out over the past two years that making banners for people does bring me a lot of joy. I used to be uncomfortable with verses that talked about suffering and misfortune, but now I really do find them to be a comfort. God knew this life was going to be hard. He knew I was going to have trouble, that I would be afraid. And he gave me so many verses that I can turn to, verses like Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear 
though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. God truly is my refuge. He is my strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. And it's because of who God is that I will choose not to fear. I hope you enjoyed hearing Jill's story. And as promised, I've got her here with me to catch us up. As you might expect, her story didn't just end in 2012, and it's been eight years. So I imagine quite a lot has happened. Jill, thank you so much for joining us and and being here to catch us up. So just like to welcome you and ask you you to kind of, you've sort of already introduced yourself to our listeners from a long time ago, but, but we'd love to get caught up on your life. Thank you, Jessica. So I was thinking as I listened to my story night again uh, from eight years ago, that when I was asked to give my story at first, just so you know, I said no. And the reason I said no when I was asked was because I was fully in the middle of a crisis. I was fully in the middle of a life I didn't want. So the person who asked me, Bonnie, was very gracious. And she said, I'm going to give you a little time. And I'm going to give you a little time to maybe rethink that answer. And so she came back and said, I'm very, very confident that you are who we need to hear from. And I want you to speak. And I don't want you to sugarcoat anything. And I love that you're in the middle of your story. And listening to my story again made me realize that that was a gift that I was given to share at that time, because it was a very, that was a very dark period of my life. And I look back, I'm kind of the kind of person that only sees the positive. And so I, when I was remembering story night, I was remembering that God and I were in a really good place by the time I shared and we weren't. When I shared in October of 2012, God and I were in the middle of the biggest argument of my life. And I grew up as a, as a Christian kid in a Christian home, and I became a Christian at a very, very, very young age. It took until spring of 2013 for me to even acknowledge that what God, like I, I said it in story night, I, I was laughing saying like, yeah, I didn't want to hear what God was saying, that he loved me and to be still. But the sad, sad truth is that I wasn't even listening to him. And so it took until spring of 2013 for me to even be able to say, okay, I am listening. I don't even know what it means to not be a teacher. I don't know how you could, how you created me, God. This is, these were our conversations. You created me to be a teacher and I'm not a teacher and and you say you love me like those those did not go together in my mind and so for me to finally in the spring be able to say okay i am just going to believe you i'm going to believe you that you love me i'm going to believe that i may never ever be a teacher again and you still love me those things can can be held i can hold those and so by the end of spring i was at deep peace that i would probably never teach again And that was not where my worth was found in Christ. So imagine my surprise when in the fall of 2013, I was asked to teach again. And I was asked to teach a group of people that I knew nothing about. I joined the staff at the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission. And I was the only woman on an all-male team teaching all men who were recovering alcohol and drug addicts. And I taught part-time with Crohn's. I had to leave my full-time job teaching second grade. And so for me to take this job, I basically just said, you need to understand that I am still very sick with Crohn's and I will do the absolute best that I can. And I feel like God is asking me to come to the mission and I will hopefully not miss a lot of days of work, but I'm still quite ill. So working part-time, I worked 25 hours at the mission each week. That for six years absolutely worked. I did some of my best teaching. I did some of the deepest, best teaching I've ever done at the mission. And I was absolutely changed by the men I taught. I look back on that time and I see that as a huge gift that God gave me, that he would allow me to teach in a setting that I just would, you, I could never have imagined that setting. 
unfortunately, six years into teaching at the mission, my health began to just erode a bit. And so I was missing more days, just like what happened in story night. When you heard that I was missing like every other day of work, I was missing at least one day of work a week. And it became very clear to me that I needed to do something else. And so God in his mercy provided another job for me. I now work for myself. I am a writing teacher for sixth through ninth grade students, and I work 12 hours a week. So where God has brought me over the last eight years, if if eight years ago, you had said, you're going to get to go back to teach someday, and you're going to teach 12 hours a week. I would have just said, no, thank you. You know what? Pick someone else. I don't, I, if you're not going to use me, all the time that I don't want to do it. And so for me to sit here now and see the 12 hours I get with my sixth through ninth graders as literally one of the most precious gifts I've ever been given, that that is the work of God and that is miraculous. And so I am I am deeply grateful for that trajectory and for the fact that I could finally lay down I'm so stubborn I could finally lay down all of the things that I believed and that I felt were truth that were not and and God redeemed that in my life and I'm so grateful. In another vein, my mom was my best friend and my mom went to heaven in March of 2014. I had been at the mission just about six months when she passed away and I got to be with my mom and I crawled up on her bed again. I'm I'm realizing that must be a pattern with me. It's like when she had her surgery and then when she died, I crawled up on the bed to hold her and the hospice nurse said, so I just said, I love you, mom. And the hospice nurse said, you know, hearing is one of the last faculties to go. Your mom heard you say that. So I'm grateful. I'm very grateful that I got to, I didn't know that I needed that. I had already said goodbye to my mom in February. So I didn't realize how much I needed to be with my mom. And I know that not everyone is given that, that gift. It was a gift to be with my mom. My mom was the glue that held my family together. And that experience led to years of my family, my extended family, my, my nuclear family, figuring out what it means to live as Christians in a world where our deepest desire was not met. We, we had so many people praying for my mom and my mom died and God is still good. And God is still God. Even just last month, talking to my dad to realize that we are, we are still grappling with that. And I believe that God can handle that. He can handle us still asking questions and he can handle us being really sad that my mom's gone. And in the same breath, we are, we are thriving. And so I am, I'm thankful as a family, we are thriving and, and I'm grateful to God for that. So that's kind of the end of that too. One other interesting thing is I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 40. I turned 50 this year. And so over a decade, I lost my health. I lost my mom. I lost my career. I lost our ability to travel long distances. I still can't, I, it would be very hard for me, according to my doctors to travel internationally, even if that was an option at the moment. So there are still things, our finances are still not where they need to be with me working 12 hours a week, but God is, God is good. And he is providing for us all that to say the verse of, Psalm 46, it continues to be my anthem that God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So that has become such an anthem for me. And it continues to be that I actually had it is well with mountains tattooed on my left wrist. And it sounds kind of crazy. I think my mom would be like, I don't know, she'd be falling apart if she knew I'd done that. But I I love it. It's just, it's, you know, I'm 50 and I have this reminder right on my arm that God, no matter what happens in life, God is good. He is God. He is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And if that is what I gained from Crohn's disease and everything that has happened to me, then it was all worth it. I just immediately had the image of your banners. You've 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 <laughs> right. put a banner on yourself. 
<laughs> I have. That's right. I, that's right. Because I stopped sewing. I couldn't believe that at that point in the story, I was, that was, I was running my Etsy shop at that point and, and you, making my banners. I stopped doing that pretty much for good. When I started teaching at the mission, I I'll make them here and there for people who ask, but you're right. I did. I put a banner right on my arm. Thank you for that, yes. Jessica. <laughs> that was just immediately what I thought of. And, and I just, I, it's so incredible to hear the last eight years. You said so many things that just sort of hit the nail on the head, I think, for a lot of listeners. But before kind of touching on some of those, those deeper things, I just have to ask, when you say you're teaching at a rescue mission, like, yes. what did that look like? What I mean, okay. What are you teaching? Are you teaching yeah, okay. writing? Are you teaching life skills? Like, I just I had to dig exactly. in that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I I was the life development center coordinator teacher, and so basically I had my clients would come to me. They would be working on in a, in a given moment anything from the GED. They had not finished school, so they needed to get their GED. They were trying to apply to go to college. In one period, I had eight clients at a time in in the learning center. That's where I worked at the learning center in the mission. And one of them was sitting working on his GED. One was working on advanced math because he had gotten into UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. And he was going to become an engineer. So he needed this really high level math. So he's sitting right next to the guy working on his GED, sitting next to the guy who was an artist by trade and was trying to hone his craft in another medium. He was a graffiti artist, but now he was working in watercolor. And so his watercolor station was set up right next to, you know, the guy with GED. So what I loved about that coming from as a teacher, it was like everyone had an individualized education plan an IEP. And so my goal as they walked in the door was not only one to hope for them, I held a place for them of hope that they could return to society and be a productive member of society. So like I said, I, uh, the first thing when they walked in the door was what do you need and how can I help you? And so it was the GED. I, I called at least four prison systems in the time that I was there just to try and figure out where paperwork was so that clients could do what they needed to do to do the next step of what they need to do. I help people get their social security cards. I helped them get their food handlers cards so they could work. There were I helped them write resumes. I also decided that what would be really good for them was to have book club. So I ran a book club. We did art therapy. So once a week we did art therapy. I would bring in quotes from, I mean, from Mary Oliver to Young Pueblo to, we just, we did a lot of processing pain and processing life. So I, I had this dream job. I had this dream job of basically having people who came in who were angry, who were disenfranchised, who were scared, and I got to help them imagine or reimagine a life that looked really different from what brought them to the mission. Because if you ended up at the mission, the mission is free. So if you ended up at the mission, you were at the bottom, you were at your deepest, darkest point because you couldn't even afford to get your own rehab. If you were at the mission, someone else, a donor was paying for you to be there. So for God to let me come in and shine a light educationally for men who either were told their whole life they couldn't do it or they shouldn't do it or they they had messed it up so badly that they they could never ever get back to what they thought they could you know do that was that was a dream job i imagine that though not every listener is a teacher, just about everybody can identify with that feeling of I was created to do something very specific and wrestling with that, but I want to do it my way and on my terms and by my definition. And the whole time I can just picture God going, yes, I did create you to be a teacher. Now you have to trust me because I have a slightly different definition of teacher or I have different seasons of teaching in your life. And who knows where it goes, you know, from here and right. and what he has planned. But I I think most of us can sort of take that sentence, Lord, I've always wanted to be, or I feel like you created me to be, and then whatever that word is, right. but it I'm not seeing it right now, or it seems like you've taken all the opportunity away. 
And and right now, this is not adding up. And being patient to hear the way he's maybe redefined your well, not even redefined because he had it defined the whole time. <laughs> this wasn't his you know plan B. It wasn't. It's not ever like God's like, oh, right. well, man, that didn't work out. Now I have to come up with a new plan. <laughs> like this was all all part of of his purpose right. for you from the beginning. You just didn't know it, and and we can feel the same way. I really appreciate that you use the word argument. I don't know that I've ever heard it put quite that way, but I think it's very relatable. So many Mm. of us at some point are in an argument with God. And that may take on sort of different shapes and sizes. For some of us, we argue a certain way, even just with the people in our life. Some of us are are more calm in how we have an argument. Others are more expressive, shall we say, in how we have Mm -hmm. an argument. Mm -hmm. But as you said, he can handle it. Well, he not only can handle it, he already knows. Yeah. He knows I'm mad. So just calling things. And I think that is one thing that I'm grateful. I I learned that in my nuclear family is just be honest. And so I, hiding that from God. Well, one, it's not hiding it. He sees everything. It was like, but, but I also would like to be tread lightly on for those of you listening who it is hard to say that you're angry with God or it's not going there's no shame in, in being in a different spot than I was in. It took me months to get there because it's not like I wasn't, I just wasn't even willing to have the discussion. I just was, I just was so angry. I wasn't even going to him. And I think that if anything, that's where it started to feel honestly in my life, it started to feel like a sin in the spring. And again, it's interesting. This was because of a conversation with Bonnie who got me onto story night was, it was almost like, a, are you holding on to the, why are you holding on to this? And and why are you not talking to God about this? You're angry. Obviously you're angry, but you're not even, you're not even having a conversation with him. You've literally, I had turned my back on even the ability to talk to him. So me taking that first step. And so if that, if the listener is in that place of like, maybe you just need to turn your posture back to even looking at him. And then you can say, I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm so sad. I'm so confused. I'm so bewildered. There are so many other words that might actually fit better than angry or having an argument that are more true to your situation. But I would start there, just hand that to God, that that's where you're at. And then I said this in the story night, Anne Foskamp had such a a big impact on me. It's funny now, Anne and I have actually talked about this. I bought 36 copies of her book. I gave them literally to everybody. And she has one of my banners. She's used it in, in different things. All that to say, I still believe that it is very easy for me to have my fists clenched. And that is a posture for me. And so opening my hands and just saying, opening them and saying, okay, God, right now I'm so disappointed or I'm so frustrated. He can work with that posture. I believe, I believe he's just waiting for us to say those things and to open our hands and say, help me, help me with this. I think that's incredible. And I I love that you talk about Bonnie because I think she's incredible. And so many women who know her, who have been on this podcast reference, just her impact on on people. And I think That's just another example of why we need mentors in our life, why Mm. we need to be sharing our stories, why Mm. we need to find our tribe and stay connected. Right. As we're wrapping up, I wanted to sort of touch on what seems to be or what can feel like the prayer that didn't get answered Mm -hmm. because a lot of people are praying for healing Mm -hmm. and it's not coming. Or they're right. praying that somebody is going to get well, and they and they don't. They pass away. Right. It can be a very hard place to sit when you do see miracles maybe happening for somebody else. Right. And if you exactly. do believe and know, God, I know you can. And, and I'm sure at some point you're sitting there going, I know you have the power to take away my Crohn's disease. I know you right. had the power to heal my mom and she could have still been here. Right. And why did that not happen? I mean, that's just such a common place for us to be. And I wanted to thank you as you're kind of reflecting on that. I wanted to thank you for kind of following Bonnie's lead and sharing when you were in the middle of it. 
We talk about this sometimes on the podcast. There's a lot of value in sharing your story after a chapter is quote unquote complete. But there's also so much value in sharing the chapter that's incomplete Mm -hmm. and being very raw in that moment because you wouldn't necessarily know. I mean, you, you, you can, I'm looking at you, our, our listeners can't see you, but you're saying you're 50 and you have this disease. You would never know that looking at you. <laughs> you know, I mean, if Thank you walk you. down the street and you were visiting, I mean, people could just get this impression like, oh my gosh, here's this like lovely young woman and she's all put together and she's got this great career and, and clearly she's in great health. Like you wouldn't know. So much That's of true. why we share our stories is to kind of show what's really going on behind the curtain. Right. Because we all have a behind the curtain mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And so many of us walk around thinking that, well, everyone else's curtains or banners <laughs> whatever, <laughs> are just <laughs> perfect and amazing. And no, look, you know, they have it all right. together or they get all their prayers answered. Right. So with just sort of some final moments here, if if you had a chance to sit down with a listener who's in the middle of a health crisis or in the middle of, you know, losing a loved one and the, mm-hmm. and it feels like the prayers are just being ignored. Maybe that's what it feels like. Yeah. Is there any anything you might say to that particular listener? Yeah, I want to I want to say one thing first. So Jessica, I appreciate what you said that if you were looking at me and we passed on the street, you wouldn't know what I have come through or what I'm dealing with. And I I think I want to say I'm still in the middle of my story. I'm still I was up a lot of last night in pain and it's easy to put on makeup or put on nice, pretty clothes and not be able to see that. So I want to say to the listener who's listening right now, who is in pain or who has not had a prayer answered, I hear you. And I'm, I think there are more of us out there than you know, from just looking at social media or the news that are in a spot that you're in. And so I guess I would just say, open yourself up to someone that is safe, that can share that and walk with you. I was reminded listening to listening to my story night and hearing some of the names that I mentioned that those people are still dear to me, but they're not in my life like they were eight years ago because we're in different seasons. There are new people in my life who, you know, now we have Vox or we have whatever, like I, in the middle of the pandemic, I am hearing their voices almost daily. I have never had a lot of friends, but I've had a in every season, God has given me some deep friendships. And so I would say, listener, if you don't already have that person, I I would open yourself up a little bit to asking someone to walk with you. And that's not always comfortable and easy to do. I would also say, possibly, at least in my life, you may be asking the wrong question if you're asking why. I stopped asking why I have Crohn's a long time ago because I've had it so long. And yes, God could heal me in a second. And I, and I don't believe it's that I don't have enough faith. And I don't believe it's any of those things that I've been actually told in person. I believe that there is a reason that God allows me to still have Crohn's. And so I, that is one of those things. I just don't have a lot of energy to try and figure out why I do. I just live with it every day. And I do the best I can. And I'm also trying very hard to be gracious with myself. So please be gracious with yourself. If if social media or being in a spot in a place where you are confronted with other people who seem to have it all together, then I would get off of those sites. I just feel like there's maybe I find a lot of value in things. I'm on Instagram at Joy in the Small Things, and I have literally culled my group down to just the people who do encourage me, encourage me in Christ, encourage me in hope, encourage me in beauty. I have a hashtag. I went looking for beauty. That's the way I keep track of my gratitude list now. I realized I stopped writing it down years ago because my son left for college and I'm in Santa Barbara and he's in Washington, DC. And I needed something. God gave me this idea months before he left to start counting those blessings again and in a different way. So I went looking for beauty is a hashtag that I use to find the beauty on really hard days and in really hard seasons. And I know you heard it in my story. I said something like, yeah, it's looking at the light shining through the trees. I still see that same tree out my window. Now I just take a picture of it and you might see it in my feed, you know, or you might see it in my Instagram stories. But I I just, 
I would say find your person. I, I wouldn't even say necessarily don't start with a tribe, like find your person and share with them and pray with them and ask God what he has for you because he, he has not left you. That is the one thing that you can hold on to. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And he never has. I still have Crohn's. My mom is in heaven and he still hasn't left me and he still loves me and he still loves you and he hasn't left you. Beautifully said. Thank you. And I know that those words are exactly what somebody needed to hear. As we end, I wanted to ask you to pray for the listeners and maybe specifically praying that those who don't have that person Mm -hmm. will find that person. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, maker of heaven and earth and each one of us, you created each one of us. And whether our bodies right now are holding a sickness or a disease Whatever we're holding, if we have lost someone, if we're about to lose someone, if we're feeling discouraged or lonely or confused or hurt or sidelined, Heavenly Father, you see us, you love us, you will never leave us or forsake us. And some of us need to be reminded of that. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you have always provided someone for me, not a lot of people, but someone, but there are people who could be listening right now. There could be a listener who doesn't have anyone. So heavenly father, make a way, make a way for them. If they reach out to someone, if there's someone that they could reach out to, please help that person to respond, help the listener that needs right now, that needs comfort or that needs companionship or needs someone that can walk this road with them bring that person into their life. You are a miraculous, creative God, and you can do this. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gifts that you bestow on us. Sometimes they are gifts that make no sense. I do see Crohn's now as a gift. I did not see Crohn's as a gift for a very, very long time. And so for anyone listening, I pray no judgment on them or shame or anything like that. I pray that you would just show them what you have for them and show them in ways that using holy imagination, they can feel you holding them just as I felt you on the couch with me years ago when I was writhing in pain. Heavenly Father, be so near to the listeners that they feel your presence in a way that they have maybe never felt it before. Thank you for being a good God. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. Heavenly Father, that is that is a gift that we all have access to. And I thank you. I thank you for all the things that you give us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for You're taking welcome. time to catch us up and to, and to just be open to share your story. Thank you for sharing eight years ago and, and for coming and and sharing on this podcast as well. We really appreciate you. (laughs) And thank you listeners for tuning in. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by this story and every story before and every story to come. We hope you join us again next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.